you would, turn the Bible to the book of Haggai, the end of the Old Testament, the third minor prophet from the end. If you can find Matthew, go backwards to Malachi, backwards to Zechariah, and then Haggai, small book. We've been there now for, for a couple weeks, and, and we're going to keep going. If you didn't bring a Bible, it's page uh, 869, if you want to use the Pew Bible there, Haggai, and I'm not even sure, I said this a couple weeks ago, if that's the correct, correct pronunciation, uh, but we'll go with Haggai. My son Noah calls it Haggai, sounds, sounds just as good to me as Haggai. We had a really cool weekend here. I was, I was excited about the opportunity that we had. About a month ago, we got a call from the University of Wisconsin. I don't know anybody that goes there. I don't know anybody that lives in Wisconsin. I don't know anybody connected with Wisconsin at all. I have never, in my, myself, I've never been to Wisconsin. But we got a call from the University of Wisconsin asking if we could uh, allow a group of college students to come stay here at our church They had 50 college students traveling to Louisville, Kentucky to work in a volunteer campaign uh, where they're traveling the country, and their first stop was Louisville, Kentucky, and they volunteered in the Jefferson Memorial Forest. And so what I was very encouraged about is Jefferson Memorial Forest asked them to contact us. That's what we want to be, folks. We want anybody anywhere with any need to think that they can contact us, and we are here for them. And so they did, and they asked if we could house 50 college students to spend the night here on Friday night um, before they go out serving on Saturday. So we said yes, and we got to do that Friday night. Now, once, they, once we said yes to that, they called back like the next day and said, well, since y'all are going to house us, could you also feed us? <laughs> if you've ever been around college groups, that's kind of the way it goes. Um, and hopefully you know your church's heart. We said, absolutely, we would like to. And so... We found a team of people that showed up here, I kid you not, at 4 o'clock on Saturday morning. A group of men showed up here at 4 a.m. Saturday morning and prepared a big full breakfast for those uh, 50 college students Saturday morning. They had to be gone by 7 a.m. So uh, we served breakfast to them at about 6 or 6.30, and it was really, really a cool opportunity. Uh, Me and my kids came up here on Friday night, hung out with them, had a good time meeting them. What it is is it's their spring break, and these are students that have signed up. They didn't know each other. They're not a part of a club. They had signed up to go on what they call a pay-it-forward tour during their spring break. They are going from Wisconsin to Louisville, Kentucky, to Asheville, North Carolina, to Charleston, South Carolina, to Athens, Georgia, to Nashville, Tennessee, and then back. And every day is a new city. Every day they do a service project. Every day they sightsee. And every day they're looking for a place to stay for free. So we had the opportunity. And as I told you all on Wednesday night, I wanted you all to be praying because I was going to be here. And as we were loving and serving them, we had I was hoping for opportunities to talk to them, and I did. I got to spend uh, quite a bit of time interacting with them. Um, and one of the groups of people that I was sitting there talking with, there were quite a few international students in the group too, uh, just really a neat group, and we got to talking, and he kept saying to me, so why would y'all do this? If you, if you don't know us, why would you do it? And I had to kind of fill him out a little bit to see what he means, but he eventually got to saying, if you're not getting anything in return, what would be the value of you all doing it? We had a group of people, and I really don't even think I know who, that came on Friday and dropped off lots of snacks. There were cases of Gatorades, cases of water, bags of chips, cases of cookies, Cokes and Mountain Dews and all this sort of stuff. We put out a whole spread for them uh, to serve just for them to have, right? College kids like that, and they, they drank all the drinks, and they ate a lot of the snacks, and it was really cool. And, and this guy did not have, this table of kids I was talking with, did not have a category in his life for doing something that gets you nothing in return. He kept asking me about that. He said to me in front of all of his peers, we're computer science majors, And when you're a computer science major, you graduate with a really good job and you eventually are just trying to make more and more money. And he said, we want to be able to buy the cars that we want, that we desire to have. And we want to be able to buy the homes that we desire to have. We want to be able to do the things that our money is going to be able to make us do. But the whole thing is we're doing this so that we can get that. He literally said that to me. 
So I don't understand why you would do this. Where does the funding come from for you to do this? And why would you spend that funding if it's getting you nothing in return? And if that isn't walking into what a preacher wants to talk about, what is, right? (laughs) In my mind, I'm thinking, he does not understand God. You don't understand anything in life if you don't understand God. God gives and gives and gives and is not expecting anything in return. He lays down his life for those who have nothing to offer him back. That's why the old hymn says, nothing in my hands I bring. I don't have anything to give God. And yet God gave everything for us. And he doesn't know that. He can't fathom trying to live that way. And as you know, if you've lived long enough and if the Lord has really changed your heart, you know that the very things that he's chasing after, if he ever does get those, that computer science degree, that computer science career, that funding that comes from a a job like that, if you ever get those things, you quickly will learn it has not satisfied me the way I thought that it would. For nothing in life can actually satisfy Only Jesus satisfies. In our passage today in Haggai, we're going to see that the people are now being obedient. You remember a couple weeks ago, God challenged them with their priorities. God said to them to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed by the the, the other nation that came to judge them because of their disobedience. God allowed them to come and judge them, right? Sometimes God is disciplining us and allows trials and, and hurt and difficulty into our lives to wake us up, to open our eyes, to get our attention, to draw us back. God allows that. He did that with his people. So now the temple's destroyed. And the temple is where the presence of God is. It represents their relationship with God, and it's destroyed. So there is none of that. They look like they are a mess. They are. They look like God's not with them. He is with them, but it looks like he's not. They have no understanding of their relationship with God, and it's, and it's, and it's bad. And everybody in the world sees that too. And so God says, rebuild the temple. And they answer to him, I don't think it's a good time to rebuild the temple. And so they're just busy building their lives, building their houses. And he even says to them, your house is so good looking. You've got nice wood panel all over your house. It looks like you give a lot of attention and effort to it. You you spend your lives working. You spend your lives trying to make every dollar that you can. You're trying to do all of these things to make yourself look better. But you've not given any consideration to what I look like to those around you. He says, get to work. There's wood up there in the mountain. Go up there, get some wood, and come back and rebuild the temple. And two times he says, consider your ways. Consider your ways. You need to think about what your priorities are. And the next week we saw that they did. They did. They changed priorities. They repented of that sin. They repented of that neglect of God, and they went to work on the temple. Beautiful response of Turning back right, turning back to God, a reorienting of your life and priorities. They did that. And we saw them obeying. And last week we talked all about obedience in the life of the Christian. Well, today we're going to look at chapter 2 and talk about their obedience a little bit further. Not just obedience to God, but obedience now in light of results, in light of uh, time going on. Haggai chapter 2, we'll read the first nine verses. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst, fear not. 
For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will find this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give you peace declares the Lord of hosts. Haggai begins, if you look at chapter 1, verse 1, in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month. Chapter 2, verse 1, is the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month. So, it had been a month and three weeks. It had been a month and 21 days since they had heard the call to build the temple, to consider their ways, and then the response uh, in, in, um, in verse uh, 14 that they began to build the temple. It had been a month and three weeks. That is not quite two months. That is roughly seven weeks. That is roughly, what, 50 days that the people had been walking in obedience. I don't know if you've ever given a month and a half or a month and three weeks to obedience to God, but that's a long time. I hope that for the most of you, you're well past a month and three weeks of obedience to God and trying to walk in his ways. I hope you can say things like, I've been a believer now for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. And longer, of which I have tried to walk in obedience to God. And yet in all of my disobedience, I have clung to the, Christ, to the cross of Christ as the place where my hope is found, my purpose is found, the forgiveness of sins is found. My identity is not in my obedience, as we talked about last week, but my identity is in the obedience of Jesus, who I hold tightly to. With that said, though, we need to be looking at obedience here, which has been a month, okay, which has been a month and 21 days. If you look down to verse, chapter 1, verse 14, it says this, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. So now you see that we're inside of that sixth month now to the 24th day where they're starting to work. And so that puts us at a little bit under a month where they are specifically there in building obedience of building the temple. So there we have another amount of time where they're going. The first one, reflecting on what God is saying, considering their ways, a turning back to God, saying, hey, we need to think about what it means to get our lives focused on God, and now one with obedience and with building. My first point today is that God's people obey God because it is right. God's people obey God because it is right. This is a, a point that goes without saying, but it's a point that speaks directly to your heart. There are some people here today who get, this is what I should do because this is what God expects me to do, and yet there's a whole other category of people whose heart, are not, whose heart is not there. There are people who want to evaluate whether they should be obedient or not, depending on what the outcome will be. You ever heard somebody say, well, I tried that before and it didn't work, Right? And so it's like they have another option to now move forward in a disobedient way that works. This is not the way Christians are to think. We really have one goal. Our call to worship from Psalm 84 gave us this picture of the awesome priority of God that says, better is one day in your house, God, than a thousand days elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in your house, God, than have any other higher position anywhere else. The pathway of obedience is the blessed life, not the blessings that we could get from the pathway of disobedience. Surely your heart knows that. If your heart does know that, then I would ask you here this morning, 
morning to repent, to get right, to bow your head, to bow your life, to bow your disobedience to God and say, God, help me for living in the cheap satisfaction of disobedience because I think being satisfied by something ultimately that doesn't last satisfies me more than you. Believers, obey God because it is right. What do I mean by it is right? Not right by my eyes and not right by, hey, your parents' eyes or something like that, but right in the eyes of God. When we had that sermon on priorities at the beginning, we got to what the heart of a priority is. It is God's priority. Things that we see as a priority should only be that way because God says it's a priority. That's how you and I value or determine what is a priority. What we should be doing is what God tells us to be doing. And what is not so important are the things that God says aren't important. In other words, we are driven by God's perspective. We are driven by this. God sees. People here have been building the house. They've been laboring and sweating over and above the jobs that they already had, the careers that they already had, the lives that they already had. They are being obedient. They're now inside of 50 days. They're now inside of 30 days of walking in obedience, and that is what they should be doing. It's going to lead us into our second point, which I'll get to in a minute, where they are starting then to evaluate, hey, do we want to continue in this obedience? Which is a question, folks, that believers should never be asking. Obedience is not something that we should question. But the reason why we do question, do we want to be obedient, is because we have shifted ourselves, listen, from thinking about what God thinks to thinking about what we think. We've become more focused on what I want instead of what God wants. And when you start asking what you want over and above what God wants, you are just steps away from turning from obedience and turning to disobedience. They're on the brink of this. We obey because it's right. We obey because it's what God wants us to do. We obey because obedience speaks to something. It speaks to why are we obeying. And if you were here last week, and I hope that you were, I, I, I said it a hundred times that our identity cannot be wrapped up in our obedience. It's not the what we're doing, but the why that we are doing. So please don't hear me today either in saying obedience is, is the end. The heart behind the obedience is really the goal, and I'm hoping that the majority of you are getting that. God sees what we're doing. The Bible says that he looks everywhere and sees everything. He knows what we're doing. He's pleased with our obedience. He knows what we're not doing, and he's displeased with our disobedience. This leads us to think about, do we really care that God sees? You know, that's a motivating factor, isn't it? People seeing is a motivating factor, even, even whether God sees or not is, Right? If you knew that people were watching, you would act different. If you knew that we had cameras in certain locations, you would act different. Right? We know that. If something's being recorded, you will act differently. This is a motivating factor. And so it is for the child of God that when we understand, hey, God sees... God sees how I'm going to react to my, to my wife at home when we get into a conversation. God sees that. You don't. You guys get to see me try to put on my very best and try to impress y'all, whether it's real or fake. But God sees the real me. And that should be a motivating factor. And so you see what I'm saying? For some people, that matters. And for some people, they don't really care if it's only God that sees some people, hear me, are literally more driven by what you think about them by what God thinks about them. I can't imagine, but some people are. And yet there are some people whose hearts are focused on God, and they're more driven by what God thinks than what you think. You ever heard the idea of, and I hope nobody saw that, 
You ever said that before? You ever done something and said, man, I hope nobody saw that? A lot of times we make that comical, but sometimes there's some really bad things. We think, hey, I hope, hope nobody saw that. A couple years ago, I was here, and it was a rainy day, and I needed to get some lunch, and so I went over here to Dairy Queen, and I kind of get guilty if I drive to Dairy Queen, so I walked on a rainy day. Surely I should not drive to Dairy Queen, right? It's right there. So I walked, and it was raining, and it wasn't raining that bad, and I thought, man, I'm just going to get this chicken finger basket to go, and then I walked back. But as I got done paying, and I was grabbing my napkins and all that about to leave, it started pouring. So I said to myself, I could just eat it here, but I didn't want to. I was deep in work and wanted to get back here and keep working and eating. I said, all right, I'm just going to run. I'm just going to sprint out this quick rain. It's not far at all, what, 50 yards, 100 yards, something like that. I'm just going to run. And there's got the, the Air Queen's got the doors on both sides, so you can go out that way and head towards the gas station. You can head out this way and straight to church. And They don't give you a bag with a chicken finger basket, so it's more like a football. I had it like this. I took off running, and I came straight, cut through the grass, wanted to cut through the car shop right here. And I was running fast, and it was pouring rain, and I wasn't paying attention, and laying right there in the parking lot was like this big, huge metal wire. And I wasn't paying attention. I was worried about rain and all that, and I was dressed like this. And I took off running, jumped over a ditch, ran through the puddles, carried my chicken finger basket, and... Without knowing, my feet were like this in wire before I could think about it. I went flying, fell all over the parking lot. Chicken strips and fries and toast are going all over the parking lot. Oh, it was so embarrassing. I was wet. I think I tore my pants faster than you could ever imagine. I'm like picking up those chicken strip baskets because I will totally still eat those. I'm putting them back. <laughs> I'm putting them back in the basket and it's Fast as you can imagine, I picked them up without missing a beat, even had the honey mustard still, and just kept running. <laughs> kept running. I got back here into the church, wet, dirty, torn pants, everything, horrible. And I kept saying, I hope nobody saw that. <laughs> I hope the cars in the drive-thru, the Dairy Queen workers, I hope the shop there, I hope the funeral home employees weren't looking. I hope no body saw that, right? I know God saw it, but I know he doesn't care. He knows I'm a mess up already. And sometimes when we say, I hope nobody saw that, we can be funny with it. But as you know, you've got some things in your life that you hope nobody saw. But let's flip that around and say good things. You ever said, I, I hope they saw that? Hmm. And that speaks to my pride and my arrogance. I hope y'all saw when I held the door for them. I hope y'all saw when I did that. I never forget, I heard a Sunday school teacher here tell a story. I won't, I won't name the person. He said he was at a party one time and somebody spilled a drink right there in the middle. And with everybody looking, he noticed everybody was looking, so he jumped up and grabbed a rag and he got down right in the middle of the party and started cleaning up the drink. And he said, in his mind, he said, I hope they see me doing this. <laughs> Wanting that attention of being helpful or servant. You know, that mindset is the wrong mindset too. I hope nobody sees. I hope they do see. Both of those mindsets are getting to the idea of we're not first concerned or most concerned with God sees. And folks, if you want to be obedient to God and live for his glory and live in a way that he's pleased, stop worrying, thinking, concerning yourself mostly with what they see and don't see. Stop burdening yourself with what they think of you and what they don't think of you. You know, the most miserable life, listen, is you working and trying to control what I think about you. The, the prison of life, the frustration of life, the cage of life is trying to literally control the perception of what everybody thinks about you. 
You're hesitating on what you say depending on who's around, right? You've literally got vocabularies for when those people are around and vocabularies for those people aren't around. You, you hesitate on what your social media is going to be. You wish that you could post this, but you think that somebody may see this. And next thing you know, you're trying to live in such a way that's, that's it's interacting or reacting to what all of these people in the world, friends and family and co-workers and all of that, see about you. And that is not how we are to live. We are to be set free from living under all of that, and we are to be set free as able to live as people who are obedient to God because God sees. He is who we want to impress. He is who we want to honor. He is who we want to obey. We want to live in a way that God is worshiped. This comes to mind here in Haggai because we are now a month into obedience of living for God. So whether nobody sees that or whether everybody sees that, it doesn't matter so much except for the heart that says God sees. May God be honored in my every move. May God be honored in my faithful obedience because Jesus died for me. May God be honored in my, listen, disobedience as I turn back from my sin to Christ and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, forgive me of my sins in Christ. Oh, God, renew my soul. Restore to me my spirit. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. God, set me back on that faithful focus upon Jesus. That's the audience. And once you get most concerned with what God sees, it'll set you free from what everybody else sees. Number one, God's people obey because it is right. Number two, God's people obey when you do not see results. This is a heavy one. Joe spoke to this as we sang that one song, When My Heart Is Torn Asunder. God's people obey when you do not see results. So once they started obeying, if you look here in chapter 2, verse 2, God comes now with another message. This is the third one. We got a message from God uh, in chapter 1. We got another message from God through Haggai in chapter 1, verse 13. This is now the third one where now Haggai is speaking again. And he says now to the same people, Zerubbabel the governor and Joshua the high priest, he speaks to them, but he now also speaks to a third person or persons. If you notice in chapter three, verse in chapter two, verse two, at the end it says, and to all the remnant of the people. And the first time, he wasn't speaking to them. Look back at chapter 1, verse 1. He's only speaking to Zerubbabel and to Joshua. It does not name the people. We see more there in leadership. We see more there in responsibility, don't we? Since he spoke to the leaders, since they repented and turned toward obedience, now God is able to speak to many people. When the leaders started listening to the message of God, when the leaders started to turn away from their sins, when the leaders started to move toward obedience, guess what the people did? Started to move toward obedience. Now, guess who's listening to the word of God? Now the leaders and the people are listening to the word of God. Now God is addressing more people. May we hear this. We just read in the midweek Bible study in 1 Corinthians that when Paul went to Corinth in Acts chapter 18 and started preaching, it tells us of people that led households that came to, that came to faith in Christ. And you know what it said after that? Their whole household came to faith in Christ. That as the leader of the home went, so the family went in many ways. Not a direct correlation. It is significant to see that now here in chapter 2, he's not just addressing Zerubbabel, not just addressing Joshua, but now he's addressing the remnant to all the remnant of the people. But here's what he says. He has some questions for them. He says, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it as nothing in your eyes? God has a question for them. So remember they had this amazing temple that Solomon had built, like the most beautiful building ever, and we read about that in the other parts of the Old Testament. They had this amazing temple that was glorious and beautiful and wealthy and huge and just amazing. And it represented the presence of God, God's people here on earth, and God meets with them and dwells with them, right? And they got destroyed and torn down, and now they're trying to build it again. And they're a month in on building it, and God says, 
how's it look, guys? And then he speaks to the older people and says, hey, those of y'all that remember what it looked like, how's it compare? God's seriously asking them, like, hey, how does this compare to the good old days? You know, First Baptist Fairdale's been around for 102 years. We started this church in 1916. Well, not we, but they was started this church in 1916, and we're still here. And some of the people that have been around for a lot of that, it'd be a good question to say, hey, how's it compare? How was the church in 1916 or 1950 or 1970 or 1980 or 1990? Or, or how was the church in, in 2000? And somebody starts comparing. This is literally what God says to them. How's the temple looking? What do you think? He says three questions. He says, who's left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Do y'all remember what it used to be like? How do you see it now? How's it compare? Is it as nothing in your eyes? God's asking them that because it's not as impressive. God's asking them that because they're discouraged about it. Listen, they're walking in obedience and it's really not that good. That sounds like our lives, doesn't it? I'm trying to walk in obedience and it doesn't seem that good. I thought this is what God wanted me to do, but it's not really what I thought thought I'd end up with. I thought taking that job was going to open up all sorts of doors for me and now I just feel like I'm stuck in a rut. I thought dating this person was going to be the answer but now it's not. I thought going to church and reading my Bible was going to make everything better. Nothing's better. These people are building the temple of God because that's what they should be doing. He told them to. But now they're sitting here going, well, I mean, we've got a temple, and it does represent God and his presence, but it ain't nothing like it used to be. You ever sat around with the older people and heard them talk about the good old days? Has that ever discouraged you? All the young people. You don't think young people these days are beat down, older people, by how much they're into video games? You don't think they're beat down because we've heard that you all tell us a hundred times that when y'all were a kid, y'all were outside from sun up to sundown. The only time you came in is when mom yelled, right? Sometimes when you're more focused on the past, it's nothing but discouraging to the future. Sometimes when you're more focused on the past, it beats you down. God, though, wants to get to the heart. God doesn't want his people, listen, to stay walking in obedience with misery. He doesn't. God doesn't want us to obey without the heart's satisfaction. God doesn't want us to obey without loving him. God doesn't want us to obey without his glory. and doesn't want us to obey without joy inside of us. He doesn't. So he asks hard questions. And I know that you live scared, and so you don't want to ask that hard question. You don't want to say, is my child that's running an unbeliever? You want to just keep ignoring it and hope that they're a believer. But God doesn't do that. God asks hard questions. God's okay with going. Man, I saw a picture here from 1958 where this room right here was standing room only. 400 people in this lower section, like 100 people in the balcony. I've got that picture from 1958. You can't even see a seat because there are so many people here. God wants to say, let's talk about that. Why is it? Not saying it's bad. Lots changed. There wasn't an outer loop. There wasn't a Gene Snyder. There weren't big churches all around. Literally, this was the only place around. This was the only church, a Methodist church too. It was the only one. And to get to anywhere else, you had to take a dirt road to get there. So people weren't going that far. But let's talk about what's happened, what's changed, where are they at, what's happened. God wants to ask hard questions and say, so tell me. Tell me about what you're thinking now. Why is it that you're walking in obedience, but you're discouraged? Why would there be discouragement in obedience? Why would there? Because when we walk in obedience, and all we want is the result, we're not wanting God's perspective, we're not wanting God's glory. The goal of obedience, y'all, is not the result. The goal of obedience is that God is pleased. 
I love to tell my kids when they get to play a ball game, and I, I, I try to tell them this every single time. I say, listen, I don't care if we win. I don't care if you score. You know why I'm so glad to be here today? Because I'm watching you play. I just enjoy that. God's heart is for us to have a heart that wants to obey God. You know that even when we're obeying, we're not that great. It's not like we're these perfect, impressive children of his where he just needs to raise a banner about how awesome they are. Anything good in us has come from him. So believers must understand that so that we still obey, we still gladly obey, we still happily obey even when we don't see results. Look what his next message is to them, even though he has raised the question that the temple isn't as impressive. Look at this. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work. In other words, God's not frustrated that this temple's not as glorious. It's not going to be as glorious as the first one. God's not necessarily frustrated by that. And he's asking them, why are you discouraged over it? Encouragement comes from obedience, obedience to God and that alone. I don't know what the results are going to be. I'll never forget when one of our pastors, Jake Beatty, preached a couple years ago and he reminded us in that sermon that God is the one in charge of the results. God is a sovereign God. He does what he pleases. He turns back hearts. He pours out grace and mercy. We don't know what God wants to do in my life, in your life, in this city. We don't know. But we know what he wants us to do. And so we are to walk in obedience. And whatever he makes from that, so be it. We will delight in knowing what God wants from us. And we will do that. We're not concerned about the results. And so in a discouraging thing where the temple's not as glorious as it used to be and the older people, because God finally asked them, are saying, yeah, it was a lot better last time. Used to be so much better. I mean, we used to have a lot of people here. I mean, it was just so, everything was better. I just missed the good old days. It just, it just doesn't feel the same anymore. I mean, people look at me differently when I come in, and, you know, we, we hear all of those things because we had a better experience in the past, and it's almost like, I'm only going to do God if my experience works for me. That's not obedience. Obedience is, I know what God wants for me, and I'm going to gladly walk in it. And it may be a home run, or it may be a single, I don't know, but I want to walk in obedience. I'm not worried about the results. And so he pumps them up with this awesome message from God, be strong, be strong, be strong, and work. What are those? Those are encouragements from God to obey encouragements from God to obey, even when the results aren't necessarily there. One of my favorite guys that I've read, and I haven't read a ton of biography type stuff, but one of my favorites is William Carey, a missionary in the late 18th century into the 19th century in India. He's known as the father of modern missions. Just an amazing story of how he left England and went to India because there were really no believers there. Landed in India in uh, 1793. 1793. No believers there, and he wanted them to know. He wasn't very educated, but he loved to read, and because he loved to read, he got languages and was able to learn languages, and he quickly learned some Indian languages and wanted to teach them about Jesus. After the first three years, zero had taken the bait. Three years. Sometimes we get discouraged after three days. I read my Bible three straight days. I got on my knees three straight days and nothing changed. Three years there, nothing changed. Kept going for another two years, nothing changed, five years. Kept going another two years. In his seventh year, in the year 1800, one Indian converted to be baptized, one. He was so encouraged. God had saved a soul, changed a life, changed a heart. William Carey would press on for another 34 years at the point seeing over 1,500 
Indians come to faith in Christ. He started schools, he started seminaries, he translated the Bible to so many different languages in India over the course of 40 years. But in the first seven years of obedience, he saw zero. It wasn't until the seventh year before he saw it. Christians know that we're not in it for the results necessarily. We're in it to obey because that's what God wants us to do. If you get the first point, we obey because we should. God sees everything. He's our treasure. Then hopefully you understand the second point. God's people obey even when we don't see results. Then God pumps them up with this message. And I want to point out three different things here. Look what it says. Verse 4, be strong, be strong, be strong, work. Verse, the end of verse 4, for I am with you. Does everybody see that? He tells them to work so they should. Then he promises them that he's with them. Verse 5, according to the covenant that I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. God reminds them, didn't I give you promises that I would work, that I would bless, that I would create a nation, that I would be with you, that I would see all of this through? Didn't I make a covenant with you? And the answer to that obviously is yes. They know their history. They know what God did out of Egypt. They know how God saved his people. They know these things. He tells them he's with them. He tells them of the covenant. And he says this at the end of verse 5. Fear not. What could they be afraid of in obedience? The what if questions. What if I spend my whole life obeying God and it doesn't get me what I wanted? You ever ask that? Maybe you didn't say it out loud, but I know you've thought it. What if I spend my whole life going to First Baptist Fairdale and that's the extent of it? What if I spend my whole life with this person? What if I spend my whole life at this job and it doesn't get me what I wanted? That's the time where you need to be able to consider your ways, like chapter one says. What is it that I want? Is obedience to God and his pleasure what I want? God tells them, fear not. Find yourself in the pathway of obedience to God and stay there. Let him worry about the results. Don't be afraid of obedience. Don't be afraid of walking with God. Don't be afraid of, I follow Jesus. He does not let me down. Don't be afraid of those things. Lastly, he tells them the reward is coming. See, it seems like they're discouraged, or they are discouraged, and it seems like discouragement is the end. And I sure hope that you have lived long enough, even as a believer, to know that the discouraging days in the faith, because we all have them, will come to an end, and God brings encouragement. I hope you know that. I hope you know that when you are discouraged, God can also bring encouragement. I hope you will strive in obedience even to find that encouragement. But even as they're there in the discouragement, God says this in verse 6, look. Thus says the Lord of hosts yet once more, in a little while. That means coming up. That means here in a little bit. That means in the future. Number one, people obey because it's right. Number two, God's people obey even when they don't see the results. Number three, God's people obey God knowing there is coming a future reward. We know what the future holds. And he says right here, yet a little while, once more. I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. What a thought. God says, right now you're discouraged. This temple isn't as glorious as the others. But guess what? Hold on tight. There's coming a day where I'm going to shake things up. I'm going to shake things up. I'm going to shake everything. I'm going to make sure you know that the reward is here and the reward has come. In verse 7, he says a little bit differently. I will shake all nations. 
So that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. God set those old people up, did he not? How glorious does the temple look? And he got them kind of going on how the good old days were. He got them kind of reminiscing and longing for, man, I just wish it was like that. I wish I could have grown up in the 50s because everything was so good then. I wish we could just go back to the way it was. And we hear people say that all the time. And no matter if it was better or not, right, no matter if it was better or not, you know what's not happening? We're not going back. We are not going back, right? We're never going to venture into the time again where kids don't have cell phones and iPads. We're never going to venture into the time again where you don't have internet and Facebook. We're not. We're there right? Times have changed a little bit. I was thinking about this this week. I remember being a kid, and in the neighborhood I grew up in, they were always building new houses, and I used to love to go to the construction sites, because underneath the Pepsi and Mountain Dew lids and Coke lids, it would say things like, you want a free Coke. Y'all remember those? I don't think they do that anymore, but you remember those? And sometimes it would say, you get $2. I don't know if you remember that. But it used to be that under the lid. And so when I was a kid, I would go to the construction sites and there would be like hundreds of Mountain Dew bottles. Y'all know the kind of construction workers in Mountain Dew, some connection there. And, and, and there would be hundreds of these drinks. And I would go through every single one, pour out all the tobacco spit, and I would find the free Coke lids. And we would seriously leave with multiple caps of free Coke, free Coke, and then we'd ride our bikes down to the gas station, get us a free, we didn't even need any money, we could do that all the time. And I remember, and y'all remember this too, I remember when they started making bottled water. Y'all remember that? There used to not be bottled water, I know you, you, we all have bottled water now, we drink it all the time, but I remember when they started making bottled water, and I remember hearing my dad, who often say crazy things, my dad would say, why ain't paying for water? We're not ever buying bottled water. We got water there in the tap. We're not buying bottled water. And now guess what he does and I do and y'all do too. We all buy bottled water. And we drink bottled water. And we all say, well, you could have just got a cup and got some, but I'll drink the bottled water. You know, we're not going back. And God asked them, how's this temple look compared to the last one? And he kind of tests them to see if they're okay with him if they're still wanting their glory days, listen to me, their glory days. Hey, how's this temple look? Hey, those of y'all that saw the old one, which one's better? I mean, wasn't that one a little more glorious? How, you, how do y'all see it? That's what he says. How do y'all see it? He kind of gets them longing for their glory to test. And then he speaks up and says, just a little bit long. Yet a little bit longer, and I'm going to shake this world. My son Jesus is coming to die on the cross for you all. And the glory is going to be more glorious than you've ever seen. And the peace that you think that you find in obedience will actually be found in Jesus. And so that your obedience will be a reflection of the peace, the obedience won't earn the peace. Notice, he says all of this. The treasures of all nations shall come in. I'll fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. Oh, he set them up. He said, this house glorious, that house glorious. Which one's more glorious? And you know they're thinking the former one was more glorious. And God says, neither are the most glorious. The most glorious presence of God won't be a building. It will be Christ Jesus in your life. It will be Christ Jesus in your heart, Christ Jesus in your spirit. It will be the Lord Jesus Christ being the Lord of your life. And that day is coming, he says. One of the things you ask always when you start studying the Old Testament, especially the minor prophets, is, does the New Testament ever mention this? Well, guess what? Haggai is only mentioned one time in the New Testament. Only one time is Haggai mentioned in the New Testament. It's in Hebrews chapter 12, that passage that Matt Deaton read earlier. Here's what it says. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, talking about when Jesus was here, much less will they escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. 
At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, here it comes, Hebrews 12, 26. Yet once more, and I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Then the author of Hebrews says, this phrase, yet once more, indicates things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. God can shake temples, God can shake earth, but the thing that cannot be reshaken is that Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, died on the cross from you, and if you will totally trust in Him, all your sins are forgiven, and nothing can stop that. Nothing, 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 nothing can stop that. Jesus loves me. That's why we sang in that song, and you know Joe is a master at picking songs that match the sermon, where it said, "'Twill be my joy through the ages." To sing of his love for me. God loves me. Jesus died for me. I can't sin enough to get out of it. I can't obey enough to get into it. But in Christ, I've got joy. I've got satisfaction. I've got peace. I've got hope. I've got answers. I've got eternal life. And that Jesus has shaken up my world. It will shake up everybody's world. And so here's what it says in verse 28. Since we have that kingdom that cannot be shaken, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship. With reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Haggai is quoted one time in the New Testament. And it's Hebrews 12 that is urging us to trust in Jesus. Folks, our lives should be characterized by obedience. Not because it gets us anywhere. Not because it earns us anything. But because our lives have been shaken up by the wonderful saving grace of Jesus. Our consciences are cleansed, our sins are forgiven, and we know that he is our king. And wherever Jesus is king, that's the kingdom. Wherever Jesus is king, that's the kingdom. And so if he is your king by faith in his work on the cross, you're in the kingdom. And that cannot be shaken. May we obey because... Our kingdom cannot be shaken. May we obey when we don't see the results because we're in a kingdom that can't be shaken. And may we obey knowing that that ultimate final glory is still to come when Christ comes back to complete his kingdom. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for Haggai. and Thank you for a king with an unshakable kingdom. Father, thank you for that. And thank you that it is so strong and mighty that it's not dependent upon our obedience. How small is that? God, thank you that your glory is so much bigger than the, this glory or that glory, the smaller glory, the older glory, the past glory, the former glory, the, the, that. Oh God, may we want to live in your glory because of Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.